Chapter Twenty Six of Beverly of Graustark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Beverly of Graustark by George Barr McCutcheon. Chapter Twenty Six: The Degradation of Marlanx. Aunt Fanny. "'What is that white thing sticking under the window?' demanded Beverly late the next morning. She was sitting with her face to the windows while the old negress dressed her hair. "'Looks like a love letter, Miss Beverly,' was the answer, as Aunt Fanny gingerly placed an envelope in her mistress's hand. Beverly looked at it in amazement. It was unmistakably a letter, addressed to her, which had been left at her window some time in the night." Her heart gave a thump, and she went red with anticipated pleasure. With eager fingers she tore open the envelope. The first glance at the contents brought disappointment to her face. The missive was from Count Marlanx, but it was a relief to find that he was very much alive and kicking. As she read on, there came a look of perplexity, which was succeeded by burning indignation. The man in the cloak was preparing to strike. Your secret is mine. I know all that happened in the chapel and underground passage. You have betrayed Graustark in aiding this man to escape. The plot was cleverly executed, but you counted without the jealous eye of love. You can save yourself and your honor and perhaps your princess, but the conditions are mine. This time there can be no trifling. I want you to treat me fairly. God help you if you refuse. Give me the answer I want, and your secret is safe. I will shield you with my life. At eleven o'clock I shall come to see you. I have in my possession a document that will influence you. You will do well to keep a close mouth until you have seen this paper. This alarming note was all that was needed to restore fire to the lagging blood of the American girl. Its effect was decidedly contrary to that which Marlanx must have anticipated. Instead of collapsing, Beverly sprang to her feet with energy and life in every fiber. Her eyes were flashing brightly, her body quivering with the sensations of battle. "'That awful old wretch!' she cried to Aunt Fanny's amazement. "'He is the meanest human being in all the world. But he's making the mistake of his life, isn't he, Aunt Fanny?' "'Oh, of course, you don't know what it is, so never mind. "'We've got a surprise for him. "'I'll see him at eleven o'clock, and then—' "'She smiled quite benignly at the thought of what she was going to say to him. "'Beverly felt very secure in the shadow of the princess. "'A clatter of horses' hooves on the parade ground drew her to the balcony. "'What she saw brought joy to her heart. "'Lorry and Anguish, muddy and disheveled, were mounting before the castle.' "'Ah, this is joy. Now there are three good Americans here. I'm not afraid,' she said bravely. Aunt Fanny nodded her head in approval, although she did not know what it was all about. Curiosity, more than alarm, made Beverly eager to see the document which old Marlanx held in reserve for her. She determined to meet him at eleven. A message from the princess announced the unexpected return of the two Americans— she said they were, to use Harry Anguish's own expression, 
beastly near starvation, and clamored for substantial breakfasts. Beverly was urged to join them and to hear the latest news from the frontier. Laurie and Anguish were full of the excitement on which they had lived for many hours. They had found evidence of raids by the Dalsbergen scouts, and had even caught sight of a small band of fleeing horsemen. Laurie reluctantly admitted that Gabriel's army seemed loyal to him, and that there was small hope of a conflict being averted, as he had surmised, through the defection of the people. He was surprised, but not dismayed, when Yetive told him certain portions of the story in regard to Marlanx, and, by no means averse to seeing the old man relegated to the background, heartily endorsed the step taken by his wife. He was fair enough, however, to promise the general a chance to speak in his own defense, if he so desired. He had this in view when he requested Marlanx to come to the castle at eleven o'clock for consultation. "'Gabriel is devoting most of his energy now to hunting that poor Danton into his grave,' said Anguish. "'I believe he'd rather kill his half-brother than conquer Graustark. Why, the inhuman monster has set himself to the task of obliterating everything that reminds him of Danton. We learned from spies down there that he issued an order for the death of Danton's sister, a pretty young thing named Candace, because he believed she was secretly aiding her fugitive brother.' She escaped from the palace in Saros a week ago, and no one knows what has become of her. There's a report that she was actually killed, and that the story of her flight is a mere blind on the part of Gabriel. "'He would do anything,' cried Yetive. "'Poor child. They say she is like her English mother, and is charming.' "'That would set Gabriel against her, I fancy,' went on Anguish. "'And, by the way, Miss Calhoun, we heard something definite about your friend, Prince Danton. "'It is pretty well settled that he isn't Baldos of the guard. "'Danton was seen two days ago by a Captain Dangloss's men. "'He was in the Dalsrigan Pass, and they talked with him and his men. "'There was no mistake this time. "'The poor, half-starved chap confessed to being the prince, "'and begged for food for himself and his followers.' I tried to find him, and, failing in that, left word in the pass that if he would but cast his lot with us in this trouble, we soon would restore him to his throne, said Laurie. He may accept, and we shall have him turning up here some day, hungry for revenge. And now, my dear Beverly, how are you progressing with the excellent Baldos, of whom we cannot make a prince, no matter how hard we try?' Beverly and the princess exchanged glances in which consternation was difficult to conceal. It was clear to Beverly that Yetive had not told her husband of the escape. "'I don't know anything about Baldos,' she answered steadily. "'Last night someone shot at him in the park.' "'The deuce you say!' "'In order to protect him until you returned, Gren, I had him transferred to guard duty inside the castle.' explained the princess. It really seemed necessary. General Marlanx expects to present formal charges against him this morning, so I suppose we shall have to put him in irons for a little while. It seems too bad, doesn't it, Gren? Yes, he's as straight as a string, I'll swear, said Laurie emphatically. I'll bet he wishes he were safely out of this place, ventured Anguish, and the two young women busied themselves suddenly with their coffee. 
"'The chance is he's sorry he ever came into it,' said Lorry tantalizingly. While they were waiting for Marlanx, the young Duke of Mizrox was announced. The handsome Maxfanian came with relief and dismay, struggling for mastery in his face. "'Your Highness,' he said, after the greetings, "'I am come to inform you that Graustark has one prince less to account for. Axfane has found her fugitive.' "'When?' cried the princess, and Beverly in one voice, with astounding eagerness, not unmixed with dismay. Three days ago,' was the reply. "'Oh!' came in deep relief from Beverly as she sank back into her chair. The same fear had lodged in the hearts of the two fair conspirators, that they had freed Baldos only to have him fall into the hands of his deadliest foes. "'I have a message by courier from my uncle in Axfane,' said Mizrox. "'He says that Frederick was killed near Labat by soldiers after making a gallant fight on last Sunday night.' The Princess Volga is rejoicing, and has amply rewarded his slayers. Poor Frederick! He knew but little happiness in this life. There was a full minute of reflection before any of his hearers expressed the thought that had framed itself in every mind. Well, since Danton and Frederick are accounted for, Baldos is absolutely obliged to be Cristobal, said Anguish resignedly. "'He's just Baldos,' observed Beverly, sniffing out the faint hope that had lingered so long. Then she said to herself, "'And I don't care, either. I only wish he were back here again. I'd be a good deal nicer to him.' Messengers flew back and forth, carrying orders from the castle to various quarters. The ministers were called to meet at twelve o'clock. Underneath all the bustle there was a tremendous impulse of American cunning, energy, and resourcefulness. Everyone caught the fever. Reserved old diplomats were overwhelmed by their own enthusiasm. Custom-bound soldiers forgot the hereditary caution and fell into the ways of the new leaders without a murmur. The city was wild with excitement, for all believed that the war was upon them. There was but one shadow overhanging the glorious optimism of Graustark, the ugly, menacing attitude of Axfane. Even the Duke of Mizrox could give no assurance that his country would remain neutral. Colonel Quinnox came to the castle in haste and perturbation. It was he who propounded the question that Yetive and Beverly were expecting. Where is Baldos? Of course, the flight of the suspected guard was soon a matter of certainty. A single imploring glance from the princess, meant for the faithful Quinnox alone, told him as plainly as words could have said that she had given the man his freedom. And Quinnox would have died a thousand times to protect the secret of his sovereign, for had not twenty generations of Quinnoxes served the rulers of Graustark with unflinching loyalty? Baron Dangloss may have suspected the trick, but he did not so much as blink when the princess instructed him to hunt high and low for the fugitive. Marlanx came at eleven. Under the defiant calmness of his bearing there was lurking a mighty fear. His brain was scourged by thoughts of impending disgrace. The princess had plainly threatened his degradation. After all these years, he was to tremble with shame and humiliation, 
he was to cringe where he had always boasted of domineering power. And besides all this, Marlanx had a bullet wound in his left shoulder. The world could not have known, for he knew how to conceal pain. He approached the slender, imperious judge in the council chamber with a defiant leer on his face. If he went down into the depths, he would drag with him the fairest treasure he had coveted in all his years of lust and desire. "'A word with you,' he said in an aside to Beverly, as she came from the council chamber, in which she felt she should not sit. She stopped and faced him. Instinctively she looked to see if he bore evidence of a wound. She was positive that her bullet had struck him the night before, and that Marlanx was the man with the cloak. "'Well?' she said coldly. He read her thoughts and smiled, even as his shoulder burned with pain. "'I will give you the chance to save yourself. I love you. I want you. I must have you for my own,' he was saying. "'Stop, sir. It may be your experience in life.' that women kneel to you when you command. It may be your habit to win what you set about to win. But you have a novel way of presenting your... devoir, I must say. Is this the way in which you won the five unfortunates whom you want me to succeed? Did you scare them into submission? No, no, I cared nothing for them. You are the only one I ever loved. Really, Count Marlanx. "'You are most amusing,' she interrupted, with a laugh that stung him to the quick. "'You have been unique in your love-making. I am not used to your methods. Besides, after having known them, I'll confess that I don't like them in the least. You may have been wonderfully successful in the past, but you were not dealing with an American girl. I have had enough of your insults. Go. Go in and face—' "'Have a care, girl,' he snarled. "'I have it in my power to crush you.' Pooh, came scornfully from her lips. "'If you molest me further, I shall call Mr. Lorry. "'Let me pass.' "'Just glance at this paper, my beauty. "'I fancy you'll change your tune. "'It goes before the eyes of the council, unless you—' "'He paused significantly. "'Beverly took the document, and, with dilated eyes, "'read the revolting charges against her honor. Her cheeks grew white with anger, then flushed a deep crimson. "'You fiend!' she cried, glaring at him so fiercely that he instinctively shrank back, the vicious grin dying in his face. "'I'll show you how much I fear you. I shall give this revolting thing to the princess. She may read it to the cabinet, for all I care. No one will believe you. They'll kill you for this.' She turned and flew into the presence of the princess and her ministers. Speeding to the side of Yetive, she thrust the paper into her hands. Surprise and expectancy filled the eyes of all assembled. "'Count Marlanx officially charges me with—with—read it, your highness,' she cried distractedly. Yetive read it, pale-faced and cold. A determined gleam appeared in her eyes as she passed the document to her husband. Allode, Lorry said to an attendant, after a brief glance at its revolting contents. Ask Count Marlanx to appear here instantly. He is outside the door. Lorry's anger was hard to control. He clenched his hands, and there was a fine suggestion of throttling in the way he did it. 
Marlanx, entering the room, saw that he was doomed. He had not expected Beverly to take this appalling step. The girl, tears in her eyes, rushed to a window, hiding her face from the wondering ministers. Her courage suddenly failed her. If the charges were read aloud before these men, it seemed to her that she never could lift her eyes again. A mighty longing for Washington, her father and the big Calhoun boys, rushed to her heart as she stood there and awaited the crash. But Lorry was a true nobleman. Gentlemen, he said quietly, Count Marlanx has seen fit to charge Miss Calhoun with complicity in the flight of Baldos. I will not read the charges to you. They are unworthy of one who has held the highest position in the army of Graustark. He has— Read this, my husband, before you proceed further, said Yetive, thrusting into his hand a line she had written with feverish haste. Lorry smiled gravely before he read aloud the brief edict which removed General Marlanx from the commands of the army of Graustark. "'Is this justice?' protested Marlanx angrily. "'Will you not give me a hearing? I beseech—' "'Silence!' commanded the princess. "'What manner of hearing did you expect to give Miss Calhoun?' "'It is enough, sir. There shall be no cowards in my army.' coward he faltered have i not proved my courage on the field of battle am i to be called a bravery should not end when the soldier quits the field of battle you have had a hearing count marlanx i heard the truth about you last night from miss calhoun sneered he viciously i must be content to accept this dismissal your highness there is no hope for me some day you may pray God to forgive you for the wrong you have done your most loyal servant. There is no appeal from your decision, but as a subject of Graustark I insist that Miss Calhoun shall be punished for aiding in the escape of this spy and traitor. He is gone, and it was she who led him through the castle to the outer world. She cannot deny this, gentlemen. I defy her to say she did not accompany Baldos through the secret passage last night. It will do no harm to set herself right by denying this accusation, suggested Count Halfont solemnly. Every man in the cabinet and army had hated Marlanx for years. His degradation was not displeasing to them. They would ask no questions. But Beverly Calhoun stood staring out of the window, out upon the castle park, and its gay sunshine. She did not answer, for she did not hear the premier's words. Her brain was whirling madly with other thoughts. She was trying to believe her eyes. "'The spy is gone,' cried Marlanx, seeing a faint chance to redeem himself at her expense. "'She cannot face my charge. Where is your friend, Miss Calhoun?' Beverly faced them with a strange, subdued calmness in her face. Her heart was throbbing wildly in the shelter of this splendid disguise." "'I don't know what all this commotion is about,' she said. "'I only know that I have been dragged into it shamelessly by that old man over there. "'If you step to the window, you may see Baldos himself. "'He has not fled. "'He is on duty.' "'Baldos was striding steadily across the park in plain view of all.'" End of chapter 26 Recording by Katie Riley
August 2009